Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And please be sure to support us at politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. And without further ado, let's dive in. Today's guest, fresh off of his appearance on NBC News Now, is Danny Savalos. Danny is a legal analyst for NBC and MSNBC and is the co-founder of the law firm Savalos and Wong LLP. He focuses his practice in the areas of state, federal, and territorial criminal defense and civil litigation. Danny also handles wrongful conviction and malicious, malicious prosecution cases. He's handled a number of high-profile cases in the federal, state, and territorial courts, ranging from white-collar criminal matters to first-degree murder cases. And you may have previously seen him as a legal analyst at CNN, HLN, and True TV, and as a regular on shows such as Aaron Burnett Out Front and AC360 with Anderson Cooper. But perhaps most impressive is Danny's distinction as a seven-time winner of a 10 out of 10 rating on Rate My Skype Room. So Danny, come on, I, I got to get some free advice here. How, how'd you pull off the whole Room Raider thing? <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I mean, really, and I hope uh, he or she, because I don't think, the, I think it's an anonymous, say, uh, anyway, the Room Raider uh, uh, Twitter handle rates everyone's Skype rooms, which was a brilliant idea during the pandemic. And I yeah. became obsessed with it. Uh, putting together a, a decent Skype room, which, by the way, is really difficult. I mean, you've got to get your lighting right. You've got to get your background right. And you know what I find now that I do Skype shots all the time for TV? It is really hard to find a place with some natural light and a nice background. And I see you've got some great bookshelves there behind you. You've set everything up. But you know what? You've had two or three years to practice now. When this first started, nobody knew what they were doing. And, you know, yeah. I was buying lights and cameras and everything. And so anyway, I take a lot of pride in my 10 out of 10 on Rate My Skype Room, the Twitter handle that just really, I think what he or she does is just watch TV, clip a picture, put it up and gives it a one to 10. And I, I languished in the sevens and eights for a long time before I got my first 10. And honestly, a lot of it was <laughs> butt kissing. I was constantly, you know, you know, uh, giving favorable remarks or uh, comments on their posts. So, you know, a little a uh, little kissing up never hurts in my mind. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I had my first appearance on uh, on a, like a TV hit. And uh, my wife's first comment when she saw it was, oh, we got to do something about your lighting. Because <laughs> usually it's just this, you know, we see 60 seconds on uh, and usually it's the guests that we're highlighting on the 
on the stuff that we do on on social but this actual tv thing i i you know this one lousy plant i got behind me is is on the desk door i gotta do something about that but okay I that's have okay very, you got a plant that's I got the a important plan. thing um now I have a very, very serious question. Uh, there is a another individual that every person in my home has a crush on, including me, my wife, me, every, Anderson Cooper. Is he as cool as <laughs> and, just... Anderson? Yeah, Anderson is a ter- really, really terrific uh, person to work with. I mean, really, all the folks at CNN were terrific. All the, I mean, uh, all the folks obviously at NBC and MSNBC are great too. But Anderson was really my, you know, that was one of the first shows I ever did when I was in TV at CNN. And uh, it was a thrill to be on with him. And, you know, he couldn't be nicer. I mean, he's he's really, you know, if if you uh, if you like Anderson on TV, you'd like the real guy because he is just a, really a very friendly, very warm, uh, warm guy. And, you know, he's in the middle of a show. I, boy, I think if I had a show like Anderson's, I would be so stressed out. I would not even have time to talk to the guests, but he takes time to talk to everybody. He's very friendly. And uh, if he sees you in the halls, he says hi. He's just a, a really, you know, really, if you I think you see whatever what everyone sees and what I saw is that he's just a, a delightful guy to be around. That's uh, that's encouraging because sometimes you hear just the opposite. It's a persona that they have on TV and, you know, uh, so it, that's encouraging. I'll, I'll tell Miss Lisa, my lovely bride, uh, that uh, he's the real deal. So that's, that's encouraging. He is. Uh, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about you and your background. You went to Michigan for undergrad, Notre Dame law. Did you grow up in the upper Midwest or is that just where you went to school? And Sort of. I mean, I'm a native Philadelphian. Parents got divorced, went out to live with dad and then ended up in college out in the Midwest at Michigan because it was in state where my dad lived. And then from there, uh, Notre Dame, because I got in and that was, you know, I was delighted to get into any of them. I didn't think I'd have a prayer at either of the schools. And so I, I went and I ended up, you know, a lot of my friends are now in school, uh, excuse me, working in the Chicago area. I have a lot of Midwest friends, even though I live out here in, in uh, New York now. I, you know, when you go to school at Michigan or any of the Big Ten schools, uh, you're going to end up with a strong center of gravity near, you know, Chicago or the Midwest. You know, I say that. And in just the last few hours, you know, the I don't know if you follow sports. I don't really follow sports, but I was shocked to find that. UCLA and USC have now joined the Big Ten and, you know, you have Rutgers in Maryland. So the Big Ten isn't really a uh, Midwesty kind of conference anymore. But, you know, the point is, you know, when you live out, go to school out there that much. I have so many friends in a gravitational pool in the Midwest that uh, it's, you know, I love to visit Chicago anytime I can. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Michigan uh, has a great. You know, where, so you, you must have come after the Fab Five were playing ball there, right? Immediately after, like the next year, I was that's where I, I graduated and went the very next year after they left. So I missed the two exciting years yeah. and got some very, very humdrum years after that. And I'll tell you this again, I'm not a huge sports fan, but the year I left Michigan, uh, the next year, 1997, our football team won the national championship. So I, I am do not have me at your school if you have any interest <laughs> in doing doing well in sports. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I just thought you might be a glutton for all that, that cold weather between Michigan and Indiana for, for law school. But uh, nah, New York is, is a little better, I guess. Are you So you live in the city there or, or uh, you have a nice house in the suburbs? Because you have a young family, right? I do. And we live in an apartment in Manhattan. And all this is the only discussion that parents of young children have in, when they live in Manhattan in an apartment, because that's pretty much you know what there is here. 
is, you know, every single day is the, when are we moving out of the city? But, you know, mm-hmm. there's something about this city, be it my, you know, our jobs or whatever the case may be that keeps us, keeps us here. And, uh, you know, who knows, we, we might end up raising the kids in the city. It has its own set of challenges, but it's got a lot of benefits in that you're close to everything. It's exciting. There are a lot of things uh, for the kids to do, but you definitely get your steps in every day because not a lot of driving. You end up yeah. doing a lot of walking. Yeah. I was curious. I mean, with a young family, there's so much that you do running a firm and all the cases, uh, you, you, you know, you're you're very hands on, uh, but you have all these media appearances. How do you how do you manage it all? You know, I, I get asked that question a lot. And, you know, fortunately, if you're really careful, you know, running a law practice is something you can have a lot of control over. You can have a lot of control over court dates. Uh, you can control things like, you know, when depositions go on. But, I you know, other than being actually physically in court, uh, especially now in the last few years that you can do TV hits from, you know, if you have a, a stand and some lighting, you can do it from virtually anywhere. And let me tell you something. When I say anywhere, I have been in the craziest places and gotten a, an emergency call for TV and set up my stand, which I carry with me and my lighting and everything else and get it going and, uh, and do the hit from anywhere, whether it be, you know, in a parking lot. Uh, one, I got to tell you, I don't know if this is legal and I guess I should know I'm the lawyer. <laughs> I once did a hit. I once did a hit from uh, the a, a uh, the South Bend airport sitting and waiting for my flight. I had my stand. I set it up. They needed me and I did it. And, you know, in retrospect, I don't know if that violated any uh, FAA regulations, but uh, I did it. No one said anything and uh, I got away with it. You know, it's interesting. I think if you were in Southern California, you'd have folks uh, that were, whether they were security or part of the police, the, the sheriff's department, they're sniffing out for people shooting illegally. And part of the reason is that in LA County in particular, it's such a revenue generator for the county to make sure everybody's permitted. So there, there was a one time in particular that we were shooting this, uh, you know, little third, I, I was helping out our, our, our local church and shooting a little uh, short film for them. And literally security came running out. You can't shoot here, you can't shoot, with our little handheld, you know, nothing, but. Sure. Uh, yeah, people are uptight. I don't blame them, people are uptight. And you know, the thing, the thing about doing live TV is that, you know, my mantra has always been, be as available as I can. Oh, yeah. And so if they call, uh, I say yes. And you know, you asked about balancing, you know, the, the, I will confess, I've taken a break on a deposition uh, to do a TV hit. And my rationale is this. People take breaks during depositions to do uh, completely wasteful things like, you know, just go get a coffee. So, I mean, if I'm taking three minutes to do a TV appearance, it's not a big deal. Folks are, you know, folks uh, take plenty of breaks. But yeah, you're. I mean, sometimes there are conflicts, but I'm lucky in that I don't need to be in an office all day. I have an office, but I don't need to be there. I have, you know, great staff that can run things and, uh, and, uh, you know, if you're just very vigilant with your calendar, you can really you, you can really manage both. It, it can be done. And it's actually not all that hard. You know, I have to say, so I, I watched the uh, the piece on NBC News now today. And, uh, you know, I was hoping for like a lengthy, in-depth interview. And it was, you know, they had you on. Alex Jones should be worried and uh, call it a day. So it was very yeah. brief. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, you know, that, you know, it's funny, that's the nature of the business. And I'll be really uh, candid with you. It, it's shows like yours, that get me very nervous, because my muscle uh, over the past 10 years, I'm really a sprinter, I'm only I can only muster up enough interesting stuff 
for about you know a three minute hit. And I tell folks who are doing, uh, who are interested in doing TV, that you really are about you have about as much time as a limerick. And I don't know if yeah, I'm sure you folks all know what a limerick is, but it's a it's a basically a rhyme. There once was a man from Nantucket. Well, not that one. How dare you? Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't know another. I don't know any other limericks except that one. So uh, I, that, I don't know how to give an example. So I need to learn one that is that is safe. But yeah, I mean, you really only have that much time. So these longer format interviews are the kind of thing that that gets someone like me very nervous because my muscle is really to do about three minutes on TV. That's about how long a guest is on TV for news. Well, to be fair, I mean, I've heard you on uh, one of my favorite programs is Michael Smirconich's his, his oh, radio great. program. And I've heard you on there. You, you, it's really impressive. One of the things I was curious about is that you, your firm has a certain practice and you have uh, certain uh, specialties, but you're clearly so versed in a, in a broad range of, of legal issues. How do you stay up on all the legal matters necessary to have such informed insights? Well, a couple things. Uh, it's when I started out in the practice of law, I bounced around at a lot of places. I really did a lot of Goldilocks. You know, is that do I like this? This uh, you know, is this too big? Is this too small? And so I was really, I was lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of different areas of practice. Everything from like patent law, which is you know an arcane kind of a totally obscure area of practice, to uh, big civil litigation at a large firm, to criminal defense, which. I ended up getting into when I started my own practice really for no other reason than it was, you know, from a business perspective, it's a it's a form of uh, relatively fast cash flow, whereas some of your injury or civil cases, you have to wait years for them to to, uh, you know, to yield fruit. So, I mean, I've had when you're a solo practitioner and you're starting out, as I was many years ago in my apartment with like a cardboard box for a desk. You take everything and anything. And so I, I got very early on, I got, uh, uh, I guess, baptized in, in, in that I was just thrown into lots of different situations and I had to figure them out. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say I, uh, I, I, you know, I batted a thousand, but when you have a practice that is small, you take on a lot of different kinds of cases. And so that's how I've gotten exposed. The other, uh, the other reason I think I'm able to is that because I, I have chosen to take the bar exam in a number of different jurisdictions. And I'll tell you, studying for that dumb test, they just give you a, a you're just in a perpetual state of studying. So I've kind of come up, I still have those bullet points stuck in my head. And I guess finally, you know, I it, it's I really more of a magic trick because I'm already reading up on all the stories of the day. Sometimes there's some breaking news, but even if there's breaking news from the Supreme Court, I've probably been watching it a little bit. Mm. I have an idea, but I'll tell you the hardest thing to do. And the Mueller report was a good example because we went live with that or a Supreme Court opinion that comes out. All of these opinions and, and documents are now in the hundreds of pages. And sometimes digesting that on live TV can be pretty scary. But, you know, today you watch that story about the Alex Jones defamation case. And, you know, I'm familiar with defamation cases. I've been involved with them. I'm familiar with, you know, procedurally what's going on, even though I'm not a Texas lawyer. You know, there are there are similarities enough that I can kind of figure it out. And so I just read up on it. And uh, I just, you know, I, I, like anything else I do when I'm doing it on TV, most of the time I'm just trying to muddle through. <laughs> Muddling our way through. We've all gotten used to to that over the last couple of years. Uh, I, you know, I've become a big fan. I, I don't know if you've ever listened to advisory opinions. It's uh, with David French and Sarah Isger. 
but it's it's of one of my favorite resources. I've learned so much about the law and have been able to dig in on specific cases. And SCOTUS blog is very, for, for non-lawyers like me, just engaged citizens, it's very uh, approachable. It's not, um, it's not beyond just the average intelligent, curious person. Uh, are there certain resources that you might recommend for just regular folks, engaged citizens like me? I got to tell you, Jeffrey Rosen's uh, Constitu Constitution Center podcast, We the People, is fantastic. It can get a little bit in the weeds because what he does is assemble, you know, the geniuses on a particular topic and, and uh, they'll you know, not necessarily debate, but present both sides. So he's a fantastic resource. You know, typically, if I know abortion is going to be uh, coming up. When abortion was coming up, I went back and I think he's got three different episodes on abortion. And just to you know, cross train, I'll I'll you know read up on the the briefs, but I'll also listen to what the geniuses have to say. And that is, you know, podcasts are a tremendous resource for me. And you know, the ones you mentioned are fantastic. I got to tell you, I mean, the the wonderful thing about podcasts is it's given a voice to all these legal geniuses that in my that were superstars to me even when I was in law school that other folks might never have known. But now they they get a voice, and I think that's pretty exciting because you know some of the folks Jeffrey Rosen has on his podcast are just you know the leading minds in the field, and you know twenty thirty years ago those were the kind of folks who would write a treatise, and no one would really know who they were, but in, but they were superstars, and it, it was it's almost frustrating that no one knew who they were. Now these are folks who can have a voice, and it's really exciting, and and you know it makes my job really really much easier when I can with the touch of a uh, on my touch screen of my iphone access the inner workings of the minds of just the most brilliant legal scholars because they've appeared on podcasts so i i live in an era where it's really it's become so much easier to do legal research uh you know especially considering when i started law school we were only just beginning online research you would have to go to the dusty old books and look <laughs> things up so yeah. so i mean it's it's just an amazing time that not only can i find anything I need uh, online. I can find the filings, but I can even pull out, you know, a, uh, a podcast and, and listen to just uh, th these brilliant minds who get assembled on uh, advisory opinions and sisters-in-law and uh, the Constitution Center podcast. I mean, it's really, it's, a, it's a, such an exciting time to, if you want to learn about the law. Well, today, TPNR, our podcast, has Danny Savalos on. So I'm sure Jeffrey Rosen and sisters-in-law and David and Sarah from Advisory Opinions are going to be saying, you know, listen to that one episode of Talk Politics and Religion with uh, Danny uh -oh. Savalos. <laughs> Uh-oh. They make me nervous. They're too smart. <laughs> no. Uh, so speaking, you mentioned abortion. I, I We have a lot of uh, cases, like really uh, important cases that are going to have an impact on you know our our society i don't, I don't think i'm being uh, exaggerating when i say that and um so so why don't we just dive into that you mentioned abortion obviously a lot of folks are, are familiar with dobbs v jackson women's health i'd love for you to start if you could just tell us what does that case what is what does that decision do and what does it not do because i've i've heard a lot of um a lot of folks feel very very passionately about it but I think there's a misunderstanding of what that decision actually means. So could you could you fill us in on that? Yeah, the, the top line summary I think that you're asking about is, you know, a lot of folks seem to misunderstand that when Dobbs came out, it did not itself outlaw abortion. I mean, in a sense, it effectively did because it returned the issue to the legislative process of the several states and those states 
not only can, but have already moved uh, to outlaw abortion. Uh, in, and in fact, what Dobbs does, simply put, is return to the states the choice legislatively to either uh, completely outlaw abortion or allow abortion right up until uh, the moment of birth. But to just kind of exp- give the backdrop to Dobbs, because I think the history is so important, it, it, the question becomes, how did we get here? You know, how did we get to the point that we are where Dobbs, you know, where nine justices decide an issue that seems so important? Well, when you go back, this is really about uh, something called substantive due process. And it's the, this is the genesis of uh, the Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey opinions. Many, many years ago, the, the idea of a constitutional right was that only really that which was explicitly in the Constitution. It wasn't really until, well, I guess I would say about a century ago, the court toyed with recognizing a, uh, a implicit right in the Constitution that wasn't explicitly there, such as the right to contract. It flirted with that, and then uh, that went away for a long time until the Warren Court. And during the Warren Court, which was the 60s and 70s, uh, the court began recognizing what was called substantive due process. The idea that beyond just the rights that are explicit in the Constitution are rights that are implicitly there. They, they glow from the penumbra. And a penumbra is, I believe, something that's the, I think it's the same as a corona. It's the glowing area around a light. They, they glow from the rights that exist in there. And the reason that's important is that if the state wants to, to infringe upon a constitutional right, typically they have to show, they have to show uh, what's called strict scrutiny. They have to show that the law or the regulation is necessary to achieve a compelling interest. You don't need to memorize that test because I'll tell you what they told me in the bar exam prep. It means that the state law is always going to be struck down. It's pretty much always going to lose. But if it's not a, a uh, constitutional right, then the, the analysis shifts completely. And the, uh, the state statute will almost certainly survive because all it needs to show is that it's rationally related to an important state interest. Uh, and so the bottom line, again, they taught us in bar exam prep was, well, just conclude that the state law wins. So it's a very big difference between uh, claiming that you have a right to something and having an actual constitutional right. So. Now we move on. And so the, the you know, everyone speaks very often of, of, hey, look, there ought to be a right. You know, you, you should have a right to this. You should have a right to that. But the moment something becomes a constitutional right, uh, it is a it becomes a, a very important thing in our Constitution, which means that it cannot be taken away. And a lot of folks think, hey, that's a great thing. But at the same time, anytime the court creates rights like that, it is necessarily uh, it is overpowering the will of the people through their legislators. So that's the controversy, is that it feels good to say, hey, there should be a right to something, and maybe there should be. But when judges create it, uh, then it, as Justice Scalia was fond of saying, it's a kind of tyranny, and I'm probably not paraphrasing him exactly right, but he, he would frequently say that, look, when, when you create rights through nine unelected justices, whatever those rights are, then you have subverted the legislative process of the states. So that brings us to you know, Roe v. Wade. Roe was one of those recognitions of a penumbral right, a right to privacy that did not explicitly exist in the Constitution, but that was something that did exist there, according to the Warren Court. And later on in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 
the court converted that to a kind of liberty interest. It, it actually evolved a little bit by the time it got to Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But Roe essentially held, created a trimester framework, but held that you know, there, at a certain point, a woman's right to terminate the, the pregnancy as part of her bundle of rights of privacy. And later on in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that became the undue burden test. Uh, which was harshly criticized. Now, that brings us up to Dobbs. And I even wrote a piece probably three years ago, I think maybe when I was back at CNN, uh, saying that, look, uh, actually, now that I think of it, it was at NBC. But the point is, I said that I don't think Roe is in any danger. And I got excoriated for that in in the recent past. Uh, And my belief was, even though uh, the court could conclude that Roe was wrongly decided. There's a second factor. You don't just overturn precedent just because something's wrongly decided. You have to decide whether or not the court has to decide whether or not there are reliance interests. And in my mind, the reliance interests were too strong because it had been too many years. We've, we've had this rule for a long time. Therefore, there is reliance. But I was wrong about that and that the Supreme Court disagreed. They took a very interesting view of reliance. And this is, a, you know, this is the kind of thing about legal analysis that, that fascinates me is that I missed this. But the idea was that reliance, you can't have a reliance interest in uh, abortion because it's always something that happens and is prospective. In other words, I don't plan, no one plans for an abortion until they need one. Whereas, for example, if you talk about same-sex marriage, there's a tremendous reliance interest there. And that's why I don't necessarily think that's on the chopping block, although you know, now I feel silly because I felt the same way about Roe. But you know, if you invalidated same-sex marriage, there are tremendous reliance interests at stake. There are entire families, uh, you know, couples with kids that would be undone. Whereas the argument, I think, by the conservative justices, you don't have the same kind of reliance with abortion because it wouldn't undo anything that with any pre-existing contract. It just means that going forward, people could not have abortion. So anyway, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is that is really what Dobbs was about. And, you know, what folks should really think about is that abortion was kind of a side issue. Yeah, I mean, Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, it, it's very historically significant that they were overturned. But some commentators have said this could mark the end of substantive due process Completely. That is. And, and we even saw that with Justice Clarence Thomas in his uh, in his opinion. He uh, said that we should reevaluate cases that uh, gave the right to same sex marriage and some of the other cases that involved substantive due process. So as as fired up as people are about the the overturning of Roe and Casey, what I think is the real story is that this may be the death knell of substantive due process, the idea that there may be rights implicit or glowing out of the words of the Constitution that are not explicitly in there in the text. So I want to dig in on this substantive due process, this concept, because Thomas, as you point out, did bring it up in his concurrence. And he brought he he brought up cases involving same sex sex marriage, contraception, sexual intimacy by same sex couples, brought all of these into um, question but he didn't bring up Loving versus Virginia. Was that not a substantive right. due process case? Uh, yes, it is. And I think a lot of folks noticed that he did not bring up Loving. Uh, and yeah, that is, I mean, I, I don't know why he didn't mention Loving, except that there are, you know, there are arguably civil rights statutes that, uh, I, you know, candidly, I don't know why 
Thomas didn't bring up loving. I, I've heard folks reportedly criticize him for it. Uh, but I mean, I think the takeaway is that anything that is based on substantive due process, like those other cases he mentioned, uh, Griswold v. Connecticut, contraception, uh, all of those are are at play. Now, I say that with an asterisk because uh, contraception is not really at play. And I'll, uh, here's why. There's nobody, there are no states that are going to, in my mind, move uh, to create a case. And, you know, in other words, to look for, to shop around for a case that involves contraception, uh, unless you have another situation where you stage a, a, a police raid uh, on a married couple's, you know, home to find them using contraception. In other words, I don't know that there's any great clamor to overturn uh, Griswold v. Connecticut, the contraception case. I don't know that there's any great march on Washington to overturn same-sex marriage. I think there probably are people that would like to see it overturned, but not in the way that Roe v. Wade and Casey were controversial. So I think those are hypothetically possible. It could be, honestly, Thomas was engaging in a form of trolling just to get people whipped up. I mean, I hate to say that. I would hate to think that a Supreme Court justice would do that. But here's the thing. If you're if you're authoring an opinion that you know is not going to be uh, controlling, in other words, if you're authoring a dissenting opinion, for example, and if you're a minority justice on the Supreme Court and you're authoring an opinion that will really just be read you know, for that because people find it interesting, not because it has any precedential value, then, you know, you you have an opportunity to sound off about all the things you're disgruntled about. And I think you've seen that a lot in dissents in the past. Uh, and uh, Thomas, in this case, uh, you know, knew that that would be nothing more than even if it was even dicta. It's just really a side comment. And I mean, if, if getting people fired up was what he wanted to do, mission accomplished, because yeah. I have to tell you, everything else in that opinion was kind of predictable. And I say that because there was a leaked opinion that kind of told us everything that was going to be in there. So it was Justice's, Justice Thomas's comment there that I think got people really, really upset uh, and really fired up. And I got to say, I, I understand because to me, the reliance interests are so much greater. Uh, I mean, I, you know, if you undo same-sex marriage, then I, where does that leave families with, with kids? If you undo uh, contraception, and I just, again, I don't, it, as a historical note, even the state of Connecticut, was trying was looking to overturn that contraception law when uh, Griswold v. Connecticut uh, when that case began. It, it, it is like many cases, you know, sometimes a uh, I guess a manufactured set of facts for the convenience of the court. I, I'm not saying anyone did anything wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes, look, I, I don't see another situation where police are kicking down doors looking for married couples using contraception. So I guess anything's possible, but. Uh, but look, I think the real message is that substantive due process, uh, anything that ain't in the Constitution explicitly, is no longer really in it, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So many different issues were brought up as you're as as we're now questioning uh, whether contraception or sexual in intimacy by same sex, sex couples. I'm now imagining Texas, the Texas law uh, where basically the citizenry is deputized to, you know, and now um, talk about trolling uh, Governor Newsom out here in California, basically implemented the same mechanism, uh, deputizing folks, uh, except in Texas, it's about abortion out here, it's about guns. So, uh, you know, to, uh, a citizenry gone wild. But there was something I did want to ask you about. 
Thomas's concurrence was that was different uh, from the Kavanaugh and Roberts concurring opinions. Yeah. Can you um, help make that distinction for us? The Roberts one in particular, uh, there were some um, significant distinctions. Could you help us understand that a little bit better? Sure. The Roberts opinion and Roberts signaled this throughout oral argument that Roberts was looking for a kind of middle ground uh, during oral argument. He suggested possibly doing away with the viability standard standard. So what Casey did was it created a viability standard and it created, a, I guess, a, a simpler test, which is viability is the ability of the fetus to live outside the womb. I should not have said simpler. I want to go back and amend that because my point is, is that it's a very difficult test in that viability is an incredibly elusive concept. So what Roberts was suggesting throughout oral argument is, why don't we instead talk about doing away with viability and we can keep Roe v. Wade in principle and then we'll set a new standard, be it, I don't know, uh, a different number of days or months into the pregnancy, a, a bright line rule uh, instead of this viability standard. By the way, you know, wh one of the things that's always troubled me about viability is that every single day that technology advances, the definition of viability changes. I mean, technology redefines all kinds of medical concepts. Technology redefines death. I mean, you know, death, I think I would argue has a different meaning than it did 100 years ago um, because of medical advances or advances in medical technology. Um, life, you know, has a different definition than it did many years ago. Similarly, the idea of when a fetus can live outside the womb has changed dramatically in just the years since Roe and, and Casey were decided. Casey was a 1990s opinion, but it's changed a lot since then too. So the viability standard was always problematic, as too was the undue burden standard. And Roberts was, was pushing for that, but the problem was is that neither side would bite. Neither side wanted anything to do with that middle ground. Each side wanted all or nothing. They either wanted Roe and Casey to survive completely intact, or they wanted them completely struck down. And uh, and so that is the direction uh, that Roberts mostly went. I thought it was a really interesting direction because it's almost consistent with his theme, which has been, he's the institutionalist. He, he worries about things like how the court is perceived. So, you know, look for him to try and mediate a middle ground. He tried that and not even the litigants wanted any part of it. The litigants wanted only, you know, all or nothing uh, or nothing else. Interesting. You know, the other issue that's been raised has to do with precedent. A lot of the hearings, almost every hearing that we've we've heard for Supreme Court nominees, uh, the term stare decisis has uh, is a big theme. So Roe v. Wade, you, you mentioned Planned Parenthood v. Casey, you mentioned. So is stare decisis out the window or, or is it just on a limited basis? No, no, stare decisis still exists. I mean, and, and this is something that Kavanaugh, this is a big, you know, a big issue for Kavanaugh, which is the idea of when do courts decide to overturn their precedent? Because we have kind of a, a paradoxical rule in jurisprudence, and it's this. The idea of common law is that we follow the decisions of courts that came before us on the same issues and the same facts. Now, you know, the, the wiggle room is is there ever really the same exact set of facts and the same set of issues in a particular case? But generally speaking, courts follow 
the decisions of the courts that came before them. That's how they build case law. That's how they build the common law. Uh, but what do you do when a case is wrongly decided? I mean, you, so you have this paradox. You have to follow what the court said before you, especially the Supreme Court. Uh, but sometimes the court is wrong. I mean, there are very clear examples in history of when the court was wrong. Plessy v. Ferguson. So what does the Supreme Court do? I mean, especially because, you know, decades, maybe even a century or so later, our, our society's values change. And, you know, what do you do when you're confronted with Plessy v. Ferguson and you're the Supreme Court? Well, you can overturn precedent sometimes, but it shouldn't be. Well, actually, the court, you know, has a test for it. And strangely enough, it's not just the question of whether or not it's wrong, or as Kavanaugh would put it, egregiously wrong. Uh, it's additionally, you know, whether or not that decision, uh, people have relied on it. And that's when you're going to take away rights. But the first analysis is whether it's egregiously wrong. Now, there are different views on the court about when to overturn precedent. Uh, for example, I believe it was Justice Thomas who takes the view that, look, I mean, when it's a constitutional issue, uh, there should be a very low standard of deference. There should be a very little deference because otherwise it would mean that the first court to address a constitutional issue uh, gets to decide what that is for all time. Uh, and I, I understand that. I mean, a, as it is in our appellate courts, when there is a an issue of law, the lower court is given much less deference uh, on a strict interpretation of the law. So, so that approach has some precedent in our jurisprudence. But yes, I mean, stare decisis still very much exists. It's, it is the bedrock principle of how courts decide cases. I mean, we, we look at the reason that the Dobbs case spent so much time on history was because, and a lot of folks might have said, well, what do we care about the opinions of uh, people from hundreds of years ago who had very retrograde views about things like women, uh, and minorities. And, and I mean, you know, we're, we're going back to almost slave times and we're looking at what people thought then. And that's a very, uh, I totally understand that perspective, but our jurisprudence is based on precedent. And one of the things Alito spent a lot of time doing in the Dobbs case was deciding whether or not uh, the right to an abortion was firmly rooted in our history and traditions, whether it was something that was so deeply rooted that it was just, you know, a part and parcel uh, of our uh, American experience. And by going through the history uh, in many, many years of history, he concluded that it was not, that the right to an abortion did. And, and I have to tell you, as an aside, one of the things I learned, you know, in the last several years was that abortion even existed at the time of the founding. I mean, I, I would have thought if you had just asked me off the bat, I would have said, oh, abortion must be a product of, I don't know, the last 60, 70 years. But all I can think about is, my God, what an awful, horrific experience abortions had to be in the 1800s. I mean, can you imagine? This is the era of, you know, you get shot in the arm, you know, bite on this wood while we saw your arm off. I mean, yeah. that that's the state of medicine at that time. So, uh, you know, Alito, uh, not surprisingly using that analysis, concluded that abortion was not a part of our history and traditions. And in fact, it was largely outlawed in many different ways, you know, a hundred or so years ago. And, and no surprise. I mean, it, it would, you could not expect a, uh, an America of a hundred plus years ago to have thought about abortion in terms of a right to privacy for women. I just don't, they wouldn't have done that. I mean, and so again, these are retrograde views, but if the analysis, the test 
is whether or not it's deeply rooted in our history and traditions. Well, uh, abortion was uh, was going to be on the chopping block because that's a pretty tough standard for abortion to satisfy. So before we move on to arguably uh, an even more consequential case of this last term, I did want to ask you about that Texas law. I, I alluded to it be uh, just a second ago. The Texas law basically deputizes the entire citizenry um, to sue, I think it's $10,000, to sue uh, yep. a neighbor, uh, somebody that you suspect of being involved in an abortion. Do you think that, do you think that that's going to stand long term? And, and if so, I, I'm just curious, what kinds of cases are, are going to be presented? What, what is going to be the injury? I, I'm just confused about how that actually works. And, I, and I'm imagining some kind of Supreme Court case of the future where uh, this law is challenged. Do you think it's going to stand long term? So when I when I look at this uh, Texas statute, we were doing a lot of analysis on it probably, uh, it feels like two, three months ago. But what was really fascinating to me about this law is that it, it, it seems to me, and I've read about the architects of it, it seems to me that some genius, and other people might call it diabolical, whatever the case may be, but it is a diabolically brilliant way around judicial review. And this is what the statute essentially does. It deputizes, it, it says the, the local prosecutor is not involved. The police are not involved. The government is not involved. Instead, regular citizens have a cause of action against anyone who provides assistance to an abortion. Now, why, why do this? Well, because by doing that, they've left nobody to sue. So typically, when you want to enjoin a government from doing something, you don't sue the government itself. You sue, for example, the local district attorney to prevent him from prosecuting, using a particular law to prosecute someone. That's how you procedurally stop a state or a government from doing something. So what this Texas statute did was leave nobody to sue, because until someone brings a lawsuit, you don't have a human to sue. And then even when you do, uh, that person might not even have any, you know, it, it creates kind of a procedural anomaly in that there's nobody, there's no way to stop uh, these lawsuits. Now, people are trying to, to file suit against the courts and prevent the court clerk from docketing any of these lawsuits, but there's a lot of case law that says that you can't sue courts to prevent lawsuits, or you, this is not a proper method to challenge a statute. So, you know, here's the thing. My opinion is that this Texas statute has to go down, not because of any reason having anything to do with abortion, but because what's good for the goose is good for the, I think it's gander or gravy. I, sh I probably shouldn't have started that, that <laughs> saying without knowing how it ends. But, but, uh, but the bottom line is, is that if this is allowed to stand with abortion, then it works for every other right. You could do it with guns. You yeah. can, there's nothing to stop someone for creating a cause of action. Uh, you know, and yes, I know there's a second amendment right and there would be a defense, but who cares if you created a cause of action that somehow allowed you to sue people for gun ownership, okay, maybe they win, but that person still has to hire a lawyer, file a motion to dismiss. I mean, the mere fact of having to defend a lawsuit is, is enough of a burden that it would seriously impair gun ownership. But let's take something that isn't a constitutional right. You can imagine a million different things 
that could be completely eradicated if you didn't, if the a state uh, legislature didn't like them by simply deputizing citizens to sue over it. So, I, you know, I've looked at this statute and I've said two things to myself, which are the first one is there's no way procedurally to challenge this. They've created an uh, assault proof uh, statute. And the second thing I think is they're just going to have to make up a reason because mm. you just can't have this is this is like a uh, this is a an, this is an unfair advantage uh, in legislation. I mean, it's it's using a cheat code in legislation because it creates statutes that can never be challenged. And if you, they can do it with abortion, they can do it with anything else. It could be something that targets, you know, a right uh, or excuse me, a, a you know, a, uh, a liberal uh, issue could be anything. So uh, as much as I think this is a really problematic statute, and by the way, you mentioned who it deputizes, it deputizes everybody. Yeah. Some of the lawsuits brought were brought from people outside the state. So how do you know, how are you going to even get jurisdiction over them to, to I mean, it creates a huge mess. Wow. And honestly, I don't know that, that I, this is a case where this is a situation where as as brilliant procedurally as this idea is, it's too power. It's it's a nuclear bomb of proceed, you know, of civil procedure. It creates a situation where. Uh, you can never challenge a statute, and and we can't have that. It's a, we, it's gamesmanship, and I think the the early opinions that have dealt with it have, have addressed that. That it's it, it's it, you you found you found a, a weakness in the rules, and that's not to be rewarded. That should be shored up and fixed. Uh, how they're going to do it, I don't know. But I mean, if I were the emperor, or if I was emperor and justice, I would you know I would just declare you cheated. I would just say not fair. You know, yeah. it would just say, look, I don't know what else to tell you. I can't I can't justify what I'm doing. But, you know, fortunately, I'm not the emperor and I'm not a, a Supreme Court justice. But that's how I would deal with it. I just don't know that we I don't know that there's a fix other than just declaring foul and not really explaining why. You know, it's interesting, as as you were describing that statute. It, it strikes me that there were a couple of cases in, in this last uh, cycle, and, and one in particular that's coming up in the next, that challenge the balance of power between the three equal branches, uh, between legislative, executive, and judicial. So I don't see what remedy the other branches, it, to your point, I, I don't see what how this can be remedied by the other branches. It's a really interesting case. So I'm curious. I am curious to see how it plays out over the next couple of years. Like I mentioned, I don't know if uh, you're up to speed on everything uh, Governor Newsom is doing out here, but he he signed it into uh, California law. I think last Wednesday or Thursday. Um, I was just joking with uh, a couple of my friends that are are gun enthusiasts. Uh, hey, I don't know if you know, but I could sue you now for ten grand. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Uh, but one one I, I already mentioned it, but one I did want to ask you about, arguably even more consequential than Dobbs, as passionate as obviously as heated of an as of an issue as uh, Dobbs dealt with, West Virginia versus EPA struck me as very consequential. Uh, could you could you give us the the summary on what it does and why it's significant? Yeah, you know, what's interesting, I, I think a lot of the, the really important Supreme Court cases often go unnoticed. And, and I don't blame folks for this, but sometimes they're just a little too complicated. They're a little too in the weeds, but they can quietly 
affect more of our lives than arguably some of the, the marquee cases that grab a lot of attention. And I think the West Virginia case was one of them. And it really is part of a body of regulatory issues. One of the things uh, that, to go back to a civics lesson, as my grandfather used to say, two, two amoeba met in a uh, primordial ooze, because I'm going to take you way back to the beginning, which is that you know, the way our government works, I often, uh, I, you know, teach a, a law class uh, at the School of Nursing in, Dre in Philadelphia, Drexel University. And one of the things I often ask my students is, you know, where, what part of the government makes law? And almost everybody who's had civics will say, well, the legislative branch does. And that's true. But in fact, all three branches create law. Uh, the judiciary creates law through interpreting cases. And those interpretations become part of the common law, the case law that we talked about earlier. So judges can create law. In addition, the executive branch creates law. Uh, there are many ways that the president can create law through an executive order, but one of the more uh, controversial ways that most folks don't really pay a lot of attention to is through regulatory agencies. In other words, Congress passes a statute, that's the legislative branch, and it, that statute might say, okay, this agency, the EPA, thou shalt, you know, uh, uh, enforce this particular law. Well, laws are often only a few lines and they don't, they don't really flesh out everything that has to be done to enforce or put into play that law. And so the, the agencies, which are part of the executive branch, uh, then get to use their own considerable authority to interpret what that federal statute says they can and can't do. This has been a big issue of Justice Gorsuch's. He called the regulatory agencies a kind of behemoth. And I'm probably poorly paraphrasing what he did, but how he put it. But what has happened in over many years is that these regulatory agencies do engage in a process called rulemaking. And the Code of Federal Regulations is an entire, you know, volumes upon volumes of different rules. And those rules have the force of law. I've defended criminal cases in which these rules are you know part and parcel of the prosecution, even though no one ever voted on them, that no elected official ever passed them. They were created entirely in the executive branch. So the, it, going back to West Virginia, the issue was to what degree can the EPA uh, regulate activity? Now, in this case, it was activity off site of a power plant, I believe. And it would be missing the point to just say, hey, the EPA does an important job and therefore they should be allowed to regulate anywhere and everywhere. Well, that, that's, I, that's an understandable sentiment. And I think reasonable minds can conclude that. But uh, folks, especially conservatives, would take the view that, well, no, the EPA can only exercise the power that it has under federal statute. And if it isn't in that federal statute or if it's contrary to that federal statute, then they don't have that power because that's not what Congress said they could do. And anything else is a form of tyranny, the argument goes. Because if it's not in a federal statute, that's what the people said. The people elected representatives. Those representatives created a law, and that law was voted on by the representatives. Uh, but if the EPA you know, creates law on their own, that's an executive branch official who was never voted on, never elected, nothing. Uh, and when judges do it, as we talked about before, that is certainly not part of the democratic process. So. You know, really, the, the issue in the West Virginia case came down to the analysis of whether or not the power the EPA sought to exert was in was granted to it under federal law. And it concluded that it was not. 
I've heard Sarah Isger make the assessment that there were several cases where the Supreme Court was basically telling uh, Congress, hey, do your job. So I'm curious if, if you think there is anything the legislative branch can do about uh, at the federal level, like some version of the Build Back Better plan, or does this case make that kind of legislation unlawful or unenforceable? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to go back to abortion for a minute. You know, I was on, um, uh, you know, quite a bit, like many folks who do what I do during the Dobbs case. And one of the things I saw time and time again, you still see it, is on the news, there are a lot of polls cited where it'll say something like, I don't know, 65% of Americans say that, uh, that there should be a right to an abortion. And I always think, you know, that is so frustrating for those folks because the whole point of abortion, of the right to an abortion, is that it has been returned to the people, arguably. So if it's true that there's you know, 60 plus percent uh, of, of Americans who believe abortion should be a constitutional right, well, then something's going wrong. That, that means that it's not being expressed through, because by the way, voting is a kind of polling. When you vote on issues or representatives, if it's true that 60 to 70% of Americans think that abortion should be a constitutional right, why aren't they voting? I mean, that, that it's such a, it, it, I don't know the right word for it. Maybe it's a paradox, but maybe it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, sad irony because it, it's, it, it's, I would say if I were being uh, glib, you know, stop taking online polls and start voting if that's really what, you know, if that's really the state of people's opinions, because this is the kind of thing, you know, it, it frustrates me when I hear Congress people rail against Dobbs because Congress could probably do something about this, or it could have in the past, uh, maybe through a constitutional amendment. Although I should add that they may not be able to use uh, other, now this may be getting too into the weeds, but really what the Dobbs court said is that the due process clause can no longer uh, you know, support a right to an abortion. Uh, there are Supreme Court cases that suggest that now that the Supreme Court has said that, Congress cannot come back and say, oh, no, no, we say that it does support the right to an abortion. They might be able to do it under the Commerce Clause power, but uh, that, you know, Congress has a lot of power here. Uh, and so I understand folks' frustration because, you know, including the Supreme Courts, because I think if you were to ask some of the conservative members of the court, they would say, we would rather Congress handle this. We don't want to be in the business of making law. I think that's the way the conservative justices would would respond is that, you know, the whole point of their originalist approach is that they're not supposed to be making law. That's supposed to be left to Congress. So I think probably you might find that some justices on the court uh, are frustrated with Congress. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point that a lot of a lot of folks I go to church with have been single issue voters. They could never bring themselves to vote for um, anybody with a D before their name on one issue and one issue alone. Uh, a lot of folks I've gone to church with uh, ha have fully embraced and fully support a, 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 an individual like Donald Trump because they say, well, the judges, you know, and, and, and that alone. So to your to your point, it's almost like the sleeping giant has been awakened. There are a lot of folks who are going to be single issue voters uh, because now uh, abortion, uh, abortion wasn't on the table. Abortion wasn't was only a single issue voter uh, um, was only a single issue for voters on one side of the issue. But now that, but now we're getting into politics. Um, 
And that's not uh, that's not why I brought you in. I I do want to ask you though about the legal cases stemming from the January sixth insurrection. I, I can't even keep count anymore how many cases the uh, Department of Justice is already pursuing and where they all stand. Do you have um, do you have any updates? Uh, well, let me let me start with this. When you talk about January sixth, there is a huge spectrum of people facing potential and actual criminal charges. You start with the easy ones. And that's, in a way, what Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice and local U.S. Attorney, you know, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, what they've done is actually DOJ Rule Book 101, you know, which is start small, get all the easy layups, the easy, the low-hanging fruit, the uh, nudniks who actually entered the Capitol and carried away podiums or sat at Nancy Pelosi's desk, Get those guys. So Nudniks, that's a an advanced legal doctrine. Yes. Is that a, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is a legal term of art. Get those guys. Yeah. Uh, they are remarkably easy. And I guess, you know, so those are the easiest people to convict, to turn uh, if they know anything about, uh, you know, the organizers or Trump. And you've seen little by little, but by the way, which they're not likely to know a whole lot other than they were big fans of his and they felt like he was speaking to them. But then you from there, you've seen DOJ move up a little bit to the organizers. And now, presumably, we can only assume they're poking around at, you know, folks in Trump's inner circle and Trump himself, although we don't know for sure, because the DOJ doesn't doesn't give us a heads up as to what they're doing. That's the why the DOJ is so devastatingly effective. So you start with you know the folks that were actually entering the Capitol. Those are relatively easy prosecutions. The government has lost, I think, a couple, um, but not not the egregious ones. They've lost, I think, a couple bench trials. But I mean, from there, the organizers you do have uh, seditious seditious conspiracy charges, and uh, I think you know those are difficult cases to make. But uh, the DOJ believes they can prove them beyond a reasonable doubt. I think it's tactically very clever because, you know, charging seditious conspiracy opens up a whole world of uh, additional stepping stones for the DOJ. But now we get to the January 6th committee themselves. And I've been covering you know, each of the hearings we watched live on uh, uh, and, and commented on for, uh, for NBC. And, um, you know, the question I, I hear the question a lot. What potential charges are there for Trump and the people in a circle, whether it be the lawyers in DOJ who were doing his bidding, uh, uh, Jeffrey Clark, some of the others, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so you hear a few statutes thrown around. Most commonly you hear conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct a, an official proceeding. And those are the two big ones. And they're pretty much defined, as you might imagine. In other words, was Trump conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, meaning Congress counting the votes uh, and P Vice President Pence opening the envelope, essentially, and having the votes counted. And then we can talk a little about Georgia, because I think Georgia is a very important side story here. But, uh, you know, the committee is presenting a case uh, that really is not uh, geared towards making out a criminal case. Uh, they've certainly made Donald Trump look really, really bad. But I don't know that they have uh, adduced new evidence that would create a uh, create criminal liability. Now, I want to I want to just say here that if you look at the statutes for, let's say, a conspiracy or excuse me, obstructing an official proceeding, 
I will grant you that you could go through the elements of that crime and make a good faith, a good, a straight faced argument that Trump has done all of those things. And a lot of folks have gone on TV and said that, and a lot of folks feel that way. And I totally understand. But this is a one sided affair. This is the January 6th committee is not an adversarial hearing, it's not a debate. It is like a grand jury proceeding. It is completely one-sided. There isn't even a defense attorney in the room. I, I want to push back on that. I, I actually heard you and uh, Michael Smirkanish talking about that. And I would yeah. like to push back on that a little bit. For, for one, sure. John Katko, Representative John Katko, presented an option for how these hearings could go where it, it would have been much more equally balanced. And then, uh, but that was um, rejected out of hand. Uh, whether you could say it was McConnell or McCarthy threw a wrench in it, uh, one, one way or the other, that that's a Republican representative uh, presented an option for uh, for this in the first place. And then even with the committee as it's structured now, uh, McCarthy chose to be cynical up front uh, by putting uh, members of Congress on the committee by submitting uh, potential Republican members of Congress on the committee that he knew full well were likely could, you could make an argument and, and intelligent observers could could uh, surmise that were complicit in the events of January 6th. So sure, um, there, there were plenty of steps along the way where there could have been um, uh, more equal representation on that committee. And as far as um, having equal representation or what what's being refuted in terms of we have plenty of refutation in real time from Donald Trump himself, you know, as sure. well as, you know, so what, it's not being presented, obviously, on the committee, but there's plenty of pushback, you know, to, to the extent that in real time, the entire conservative media complex is, get, is getting exactly what their talking points are and is the voice of the other side, per se. I, I just I take issue with that objection because there were plenty of opportunities to have an, a more equally represented committee in the first place. And there's no secret about what the um, what the response is all along the way in real time. Right. I agree with you that the that the opportunities were there for this to be a more uh, a more even handed presentation. But whatever those choices that were made we're left with what the American public have seen. Because I, I think maybe a lot of members of the American viewing public maybe aren't aware that there was there were these opportunities. So let's just look at what they see when they tune in to watch their Congress people put on this presentation. And the presentation itself, and you could blame the Republicans for it, uh, is has been one-sided. So strictly from a criminal prosecution standpoint, I mean, to take only what they've presented and say, oh, this is obstruction of an official proceeding really is. And, and this is goes to the core of why Donald Trump hasn't been charged yet, because there's more to the story. And any federal prosecutor worth their salt, you know, who usually has a 95 plus conviction rate, uh, does not want to take on a case that they might lose. And what we're not going to hear about during the committee hearings are the potential defenses, mm. the First Amendment defenses, the lack of actual knowledge defenses, which they've tried to short circuit. Um, uh, Representative Cheney has tried to short circuit that by saying, listen, their ignorance only goes so far. I mean, you know, he, he can't claim that he had no idea what was going on at all. 
uh, I mean, you know, at some point, believing you won the election in the face of uh, many, many smart people telling you that you didn't becomes unreasonable. But at the end of the day, the other thing that that a, a prosecutor has to consider is something that I don't hear folks talking a lot about, which is this. At the core of this case is about whether or not what Donald Trump did in believing that he won an election. It's not about a pretty, it's not about a straightforward crime like robbing a bank, which everybody knows is illegal. But I would venture a guess that if you ask most folks what happens in elections, they might say, look, you know, pe- each side does whatever they can to win. You know, it's, it's a, a bare knuckle situation, politics and elections. Uh, you know, everybody does their own dirty tricks. I don't know what they would say, but I think folks would at least admit that they, that it's a, a hazy, shadowy world the entire election process not that i'm not the actual casting ballots i'm saying you know what what each side does to try and win i'm not saying in any way that there was you know a problem uh, with the with the um, election process more that people do whatever they can to win so donald trump you know believing that he may have won the election becomes a core issue and a prosecutor has to think about the makeup of a jury i mean is there anyone on that jury that thinks that people engage in dirty tricks during elections? If so, that's somebody that might at least uh, hold out or acquit. Is there anyone in there that just thinks election law is too complicated? I mean, you might lose that juror and that juror might uh, you know, hold out or vote to acquit. Uh, does, is there a viable First Amendment defense? I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, elections implicate the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is a, you know, anytime you're criminalizing speech, which is really what all this is, you don't have a situation where anyone, you know, held up a gun or attacked anyone physically. Uh, these are words that we're trying to criminalize. And anytime you criminalize words, uh, you there are so many different defenses. Sometimes context can be a defense. Sometimes the First Amendment can be a defense. Sometimes political speech can be a defense. Sometimes intent can be a defense. So, I think very reasonable minds can look at what the January 6th committee has presented so far and say that clearly fits within uh, a federal criminal statute, like obstruction of an official proceeding. But I also think equally reasonable minds can conclude that this is a case that the government wouldn't be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think they're both right. And I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm uh, hedging my bets when I say that. I do think they're both right. So is there a, a a calcul- you, you mentioned this, but I, I want to ask the question head on. Is there a calculation on the part of the DOJ? Uh, they have to be 90% certain, 99% certain of conviction if they were to bring a case against a former president of the United States. Yeah, the principles of federal prosecution uh, say that you, you shouldn't bring a case. It, you, can, you can indict someone if you just have probable cause. That's the standard at a grand jury. Uh, but the, you know, the principles of federal prosecution say that is not the standard for deciding to bring a prosecution. You must believe you can prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, considering all the defenses and everything else. And I believe that someone like Merrick Garland is taking that rule very, very seriously. And I guess my it's, a, it's almost like a, a cheating piece of evidence of that. But uh, I'll tell you, the part of the reason uh, I think that they're taking that very seriously is that they haven't charged him yet. It's been a year and a half since January 6th. And uh, I always assume that whatever the little January 6th committee has with their you know, interns or whatever, whatever they have, I think they would even agree 
pales in comparison to the investigative tools that the Department of Justice has. Yeah. I mean, the January 6th committee can't even flip a witness. They can't even go to someone and say, hey, if you cooperate with us, uh, we'll give you, you know, substantial assistance and we'll reduce your, your sentence. And the January 6th committee can't do that. The right. DOJ can. The DOJ has secret grand juries. Uh, rule 6E, you know, they can't talk about, I mean, that everything that happens in a grand jury is totally secretive. The January 6th committee doesn't have that. Uh, so, I mean, I would be astonished, and I've said this on air, that I, I, I would be absolutely nonplussed if the DOJ doesn't have twice as much as the January 6th committee. And given all that, that they have, there have been no charges yet. And we're a year and a half, you know, more than a year and a half out from January 6th. And I understand collecting all the evidence, but, you know, statutes of limitations are running. And, you know, if if they're still waiting for some blockbuster piece of evidence, that that probability seems to diminish, you know, as we get further and further away from January 6th, unless there's some new treasure trove out there that uh, that we don't know about. But, you know, I, you know, DOJ, if they had the goods, they would have charged by now. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, so the potential defenses that you've mentioned, do the same potential defenses apply to the Georgia case? No. And that's why I think the Georgia case is the biggest threat to Donald Trump. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the strength of the case, although I'm really, really surprised. And maybe it's, again, the sensational way Trump said it. But there's been so much focus on this uh, I need you to find me the 11,780 votes, right? Yeah. I mean, we, everyone's heard that that clip uh, or seen it in text on their screen of Donald Trump telling uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, uh, in a recorded phone call, I need you to find me 11,000 votes. I, I found that to be a very defensible statement. I mean, I think you could interpret that, again, anytime you criminalize words, you have to consider all kinds of things, including context. And, you know, was he saying, was he, expressing hope, you know, hey, I, I just need, this is what I need. I need these votes, darn it. Um, <laughs> or was he saying, you better go find me these votes? I don't know. But you know, what's really interesting is in the next breath almost, he says something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, what you and your lawyer are doing, and again, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact quote, but it's pretty bad in my mind. It essentially suggests that Raffensperger and his lawyer could be committing federal crimes. And that's gone completely under the radar compared to the find me the votes. Right. I think that is very problematic. If the chief executive officer, the chief law enforcement officer for the United States is suggesting a, that someone's committing a federal crime unless they are complicit, there could be something there for sure. But here's the real reason. You know, the substance aside, the real reason that uh, that case poses the biggest threat is more rooted in principles of federalism. In other words, Someone like Merrick Garland has a lot of concern uh, about the institution and whether or not a, the DOJ, which is part of the executive branch, should be charging a former president, the head of the executive branch. An elected district attorney in the state of Georgia has no such concerns. Mm. Uh, I would even argue that, you know, it, the, you know, the wrong it, it, it's, you know, an elected DA in some county uh, could possibly have, you know, visions of sugar plums, you know, dreams of, of the, the greatest trophy ever, right? I mean, I'm not saying that's Fannie Willis at all, uh, but I'm saying that that could be any DA anywhere. Right. Uh, and, and that is, by the way, it goes to the core of that tenuous balance between the states and the federal government. Whatever compunction, whatever misgivings 
Merrick Garland would have about charging a former president. I promise you a local DA does not. Uh, you might even say they would have an incentive to go after the feds, right? I mean, if they, if it, it, it is almost federalism at work to say that it, uh, Trump faces a bigger threat from a state prosecutor than a federal prosecutor, because the DOJ doesn't really make decisions. Even Merrick Garland doesn't make decisions by himself. He makes it as an institution. Uh, an elected DA, on the other hand, you know, is really is the 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 king of his or her law enforcement agency and. And uh, they can go make a name for themselves if they want to. So I, that's why I think the Georgia case presents the biggest threat to Donald Trump. Interesting stuff. Uh, well, my, uh, my dog just uh, indicated that she is thoroughly unimpressed with all of our, you know, <laughs> all, yep. all the, she's not concerned at all about uh, democracy itself. So <laughs> good for her. Yeah. And I'm sure you're, you, you have kids that would probably say the same. So I, I won't make you prognosticate on Moore versus Harper, but I would like to have you back after next term uh, because independent state legislature, this is a doctrine that um, I, it, it'll be interesting. I, I'm, I was, I was intrigued by the fact that they took the case. Uh, but if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that only requires four of the justices um, to, I forget how the process goes, but for the justices to say, yes, we want to hear that case. So it, it'll be interesting to see, um, to hear the case and then to see how it's decided. My own feeling, and this is just completely amateur, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a constitutional historian, uh, but based on what we saw in November, December of last of 2020, I, I'm not as concerned about that case as some of my other friends are. What we saw in Kelly versus Pennsylvania, Republican Party of Pennsylvania versus, I don't even know how to say it, uh, DeGraffenreid, um, dismissed. Uh, we learned about the Latches Doctrine. We learned all of these things, but it, it indicates there are currently uh, justices that at the very least would defer to a state Supreme Court uh, that would not upset Again, we're looking at the balance of power that would not say uh, that a state legislature can act completely independently uh, in, a, in, in a way, like an authoritarian way. But that's, again, that's just my completely amateur prognostication about how that case is going to go. I won't force you to answer anything about that because it's, it's not, uh, it, we haven't heard the case yet, but I, I'll give you the floor if you do want to make any comments about that. Oh no! I'll save that for the next uh, the next visit. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I'm afraid we there are so many other cases to to visit. The religious liberty cases: Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, Carson versus Macon. Uh, but um, but I, I want to give you the opportunity before we start to wrap up. Number one, tell me about why don't we know? Oh, why don't we know? Is my wife's podcast with the in a, in a. My wife, Sarah Gannam, is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter when she was at, uh, and we met at CNN, actually. Uh, she has a podcast entering its second season with the University of Florida, and it is about uh, freedom of information requests, what the government uh, doesn't want us to know, and what we don't find out unless we really, really try to pull it out of the government, kicking and screaming. And it's, I'm assuming it's on all major podcast apps? Oh, yeah. Yep. Sure is. Why don't we know? So look it up. It yes. sounds fascinating. I'll definitely be looking it up now. Uh, my second to last question is, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. How'd I do? 
I think you did great, man. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to me because again, it's your, your depth of knowledge, the nuance of, of understanding of each of these cases is really impressive. And, and, you know, with, uh, like I said before, with two little kids and, and running a, a law firm, it's really impressive how, how in depth, uh, your, your insights go. So I, um, I really appreciate that. And I think a lot of my listeners are going to be edified uh, for the insights that you shared. So you did great. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And to your point about my, the uh, two little kids, you know, whatever I know uh, about Supreme Court, I know far more about uh, Moana and Encanto and all the Disney movies. Now that's my, that's my life. That's going to be your life for like the next 10, 15 years. Yeah. My kids are sure 21, is. 19 and 17. So now maybe we'll get a Marvel thing here and there, but uh, yeah, but uh, it, that, that was our world for, for the better part of 10, 15 years. So enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. It's, it's a fun one. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. And the last question is, how can we find you online so we can, you know, follow oh, yeah. all of your great analysis? Thank you. Sabalos uh, Law, C-E-V-A-L-L-O-S Law on both Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, and of course, check out MSNBC, NBC, NBC News Now, and even CNBC. I do Shep Smith's show uh, from time to time uh, on, in the evenings at 7 p.m. You, by the way, you did really terrific when you were uh, filling in for for Michael Smirkanish. So, uh, oh wow, yeah, maybe we can maybe we can uh, it, it recruit you to do you know the Danny Savalos show at some point. But that's that's for another <laughs> conversation. So I really well, appreciate you, you coming on, and and uh, this was a real treat for me. I, I I'm, I'm fascinated by this stuff, and I I'm just really appreciative of uh, all that you shared with us. So uh, let's not make it the last time. I, I owe you a nice, uh, I don't know, if we go back, we'll, maybe we'll meet in Philly and I, I owe you a nice cheesesteak or something like that. <laughs> Sounds great. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and our pod. You know, TP and our pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.